Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And this is going to be one of our uh, new regular Q&A episodes. Um, we're really uh, enjoying looking at some of the questions that you guys have been emailing in. Uh, molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk if you'd like to send us a question. Um, uh, first up, we, this is a question from a listener called Andrew. And Andrew asks, um, what should the UK church's response be to the war in Ukraine? Is there ever a time when churches should actively be involved or participate and support a war? Yeah, it's a really good um, good question. And I think that it's true to say, isn't it, that when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine over a year ago, there was a huge amount of shock and horror and uh, an outrage uh, in the country as a whole, and um, in- including lots of Christians who felt very, very exercised about this. But it's interesting that a year down the line, it's really receded into in the news agenda, isn't it? And um, the fact that this horror is still going on and that people are being bombed and dying uh, often in horrific ways, um, continuously every day. It, it does seem as though, you know, our ability to to tolerate this and almost not to notice it is 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 very high. So, so I would want to say yes. You know, this is such an important thing that is going on, such a terrible thing, that it ought to be much higher on the agenda for Christians, um, and in terms of awareness of what's going on in terms of providing help. I do think one of the uh, very positive ways in which the church was involved earlier on was in welcoming refugees. And uh, there is still very much a place for that, that, um, you know, there are still uh, refugees that need housing. Um, One of the things that happened is is the UK started the UK Homes for Ukraine scheme. Um, But now what's happened is that many uh, families have been with hosts for a year or longer and are finding it extremely difficult to find any accommodation. So there's actually a need for more hosts to come forward and offer their homes. So I suppose I'd want to say that that's a very distinctively Christian response, isn't it? Uh, Rather than directly aiding the war efforts saying, how can we help the refugees? Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, you're right. It would be it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to see Christians who are you know lucky enough to have uh, to be landlords and to have uh, other homes that they're renting out to be maybe kind of prioritising trying to house refugees who are kind of coming off the the kind of official government sponsored scheme and and need somewhere to live and finding like many people that the UK has in the midst of a housing crisis and and housing is is, is very very expensive. Um, I guess hiding behind the question is 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 this idea that you know you'd be hard pressed to find any Christian who would disagree with with helping humanitarianly the need that is in Ukraine, but is 
the question, you know, Andrew asks, is there ever a time when churches should actively be involved or participate in a war? And that kind of strikes at challenging debates within Christianity about uh, kind of violence, pacifism, just war theory. Um, how would you feel, you know, if, if people from your church said, I, you know, I feel so strongly about the injustice of this that I'm actually going to to, to join the Ukrainian armed forces, pick up a gun and, and go and, you know, ultimately try and kill Russians? Yes, and, and you know, this is an issue which has uh, challenged the Christian church right from the beginning, the very early church. It's, it's always been a debate between uh, pacifism, what is often regarded as, you know, what, what Jesus himself would have done, turn the other cheek, Sermon on the Mount, and so on, versus uh, the how states should respond to um to aggression and and certainly i would want to really honor the the history of christian pacifism you know which which has been there for centuries and where enormous sacrifices have been made uh by pacifists and conscientious objectors and others who've who've often gone into warfare and and you know w- where pacifists have real integrity is where they are prepared to put their bodies and lives on the line for the sake of their principles. And so, for instance, I know that pacifists have often been acting in caring roles in the midst of um, warfare. And I would really respect somebody uh, who felt very strongly about pacifism, but nonetheless who was uh, prepared to go to Ukraine and to the front line in order to care for wounded soldiers and for orphans and provide practical help uh, and, and in themselves, at the same time exposing themselves to danger. So that, that to me, is pacifism with integrity. Uh, I mean, the alternative is the so-called just war understanding, which is that there are arguments to take up arms uh, in order to resist terrible evil and uh i do think putin's russia and what appears to be happening the way that the russians are fighting the their utter disregard and contempt even for their own troops let alone the the troops on the other side uh would represent the kind of horrific evil that the just war theory requires that you know that before one takes up arms you you have to, there has to be uh justice in the way that you approach you know that you have to have certain criteria you have to have exhausted all possible means of peaceful uh reconciliation and then secondly there has to be justice actually in the war itself in how you prosecute war that this has to be done in a way that is consistent with christian principles and so on that you restrict your um your your arms only on combatants that you protect the rights of civilians that you only use you don't use weapons of mass destruction and so on and so on yeah i think i'm broadly in agreement i think the christian pacifist tradition has got a lot of richness there and has been at times a powerful witness kind of standing against militarism and kind of nationalism and 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 kind of unpleasant kind of uh times in history when when states have become 
too focused on using kind of force of arms to resolve disagreements. Um, I guess my concern or my question is, how does Christian pacifism deal with situations, which I think the war in Ukraine would fall into where there is an entirely, this is not like a kind of high level stakes disagreement between two kind of even sized powers and it's all part of great power politics. This is a an unprovoked, and unjustified, brutal aggression by a, a much more powerful country against its its innocent neighbour. Um, and is not only that, it's been prosecuted, as you say, with incredible cruelty and disregard for human life. If the Christian pacifist response is, that's really evil, but all I can do is, you know, carry a stretcher and tend for the wounded, I struggle with that as an authentically Christian response because it, it seems to me that sometimes the Christian pacifist tradition wants to live in the world that doesn't actually exist and you know i have no doubt whatsoever that in the new creation there will be no war and there will be no violence and therefore there will be there will be no need for guns and armies and soldiers but in the world we live in a broken world full of broken people um there are there are times when the only way to to prevent great harm coming to god's precious children is to take up force yourself and i just can't really believe that that the way of Jesus would involve the people of Ukraine just, you know, standing down and allowing Russia to bombard and torture and, you know, kidnap children and rape and kill and destroy um, and ultimately occupy that nation and absorb it into a totalitarian, autocratic dictatorship, uh, repressive. I just think, I just don't see that being uh, the, the outcome that God desires. And while... I've no doubt that all war and conflict grieves the heart of God. I, I just, yeah, I think the just war theory, which says within these certain strict parameters done in a limited way as a last resort, when there are no diplomatic and peaceful alternatives, I think sometimes it is okay for Christians to to take up arms and to fight to defend the kind of freedoms and the security uh, of, of, of their own people. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah and I, I agree. And, and I think it is interesting that I think Ukraine has concentrated the minds of many thinkers and theologians in this kind of area, you know, that, that, as many people have said, Ukraine is almost like a rerun of the Second World War, um, on a much smaller scale, but it is, you know, it's an old fashioned war. So often, you know, pacifism was responding to a nuclear age, to Hiroshima and um, to the the horrors of um, post-Second World War uh, apocalypse, that that kind of thing. And so I, I think that when we see a kind of old-fashioned uh, totalitarian... But, but regime with with fearsome armaments that is prepared to throw everything and and sacrifice lives um very much like the the Roman Empire of old and and you know like uh stalin's russia and uh, and so on then I think the idea that actually Christians cannot just stand by and that there is a place for for armed resistance i I think that is an idea that is very much more current and 
it's interesting. I suspect that most Christians of your generation would, in theory, um, come to the same conclusion. Uh, having said that, you know, I've often imagined in my mind what would happen if tomorrow morning war broke out in the UK and conscription of everybody under every male under 40 had been introduced, how many people would be fleeing, would be getting on a plane in order mm. to get anywhere on the planet to avoid being conscripted and risk and risking your life? It's an interesting question. And I think often it's tempting to conclude that kind of present generations don't have the the moral fiber and the stamina and the devotion to duty that previous ones did. What I find really fascinating about Ukraine, which is in many ways an intensely kind of recognizably 21st century country, you know, the, the people there, the millennials there, the, the, the under 40s there are very much like, like me and my peers and my friends. And yet actually what the reports say is that because the justness of Ukraine's cause and the urgency of defending your your people from this brutal invasion are so pressing, actually, there's been very little of that. There's been very little people trying to avoid their responsibilities, duck out of it. Um, in fact, there's been wide social pressure from all generations, as far as I understand, to join up, to fight, to serve, to do your bit. Uh, yeah. similar yeah. similar sentiments that I think people kind of came across in the early early days of World War Two, because I think people are compelled by the justice of Ukraine's cause, um, and in fact I think there's, it's it's caused issues for for those small number of Ukrainians who do hold to a kind of Christian pacifist tradition. I I've, I was aware secondhand of of a, a, ref, a Christian refugee from Ukraine here in the UK and her church, even small evangelical church back home in Ukraine, did have historically a, a christian pacifist tradition um i think it must have come out of um kind of missionary work maybe by some kind of anabaptist or mennonite missionaries or something like that um and they've been really really wrestling with how, what on earth do they do mm. because being it's all very well being a christian pacifist in the uk right now or in ukraine 10 years ago when it is you know an interesting philosophical theoretical idea but when actually there is a conscription, mm, there's a draft absolutely. and that, you know, your country, men and women are living under occupation by a brutal invading regime. It takes unbelievable courage to be disloyal as it would be seen and to say, actually, I refuse to serve. I refuse to fight. I refuse mm -hmm. to defend. Um, and, you know, as far as I understand, that church has basically been split down the middle with people holding to their pacifist roots, despite the social cost and others saying, actually, do you know what? this is this has i've changed my mind yeah. and this war is a just war and actually i i need to take up arms like like my other kind of fellow ukrainians are yeah and i and i think that's uh, it, it's fascinating isn't it and it is illustrative of how deep this division goes you know in the history of christianity but the other fascinating thing about ukraine is how utterly sexist it is so in other words you're a man you fight you stay here. You're not allowed out of the country. You're a woman. You leave and you look after children, you know. And <laughs> uh, so it's fascinating that on the one hand, it, it is it does feel like a throwback. You know, it's women and children first. They leave the country. They don't their role. And then the men, what do the men do? They protect. And, yeah. uh, you know, would that happen here? 
Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, uh, as of about five years ago, the the British armed forces are completely kind of gender neutral in the sense of um, men or women are um, able to to apply and to serve in, in any role in any of the three branches of, of the armed forces. Um, you know, and so in theory, if we were to, to be under, at war again and conscription was introduced, there would be a question about, you know, obviously you can't conscript everyone because then who looks after the children who you know runs the factories and in the, in in world war 2 it was very clear obviously a sexist society you would conscript the men and you'd let the women keep the, the home fires burning and i just sometimes wonder what would they do now would they have a kind of lottery where you know <laughs> half of women and half of men are conscripted <laughs> And so it could be that, uh, you know, my wife is I'm a very to new go and man. fight and I have yeah. to stay at home looking up, holding the baby. I'm a very new man. I definitely need to be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm but the new man that it, cares for the but children. It's, genu- it's genuinely a really interesting di- di- dynamic, but I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating yeah. to see Ukraine's approach. This is thoroughly patriarchal in that respect. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Interesting <laughs> times. <laughs> to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Shall we move on to another question? Um, This is from Robert, and he was uh, writing after our recent episode on generative AI. Um, And he writes this, Do you find yourself, like me, reflecting on the impact of Genesis 11? Which, for those not aware, is the story of the Tower of Babel, and in particular, verse 6 which says this in the NIV translation, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And Robert says, to my mind, pretty much all of today's challenging issues are wrapped up in this brief episode where the infinite creative potential of humans is not only alluded to by God, but where also the ultimate threat of this potential is laid bare, the result of humans deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. And I absolutely agree that the uh, this passage in Genesis 11, which describes the making of the Tower of Babel, is, is such a rich and uh, prophetic um, narrative that, that does have various links. So, so on the one hand, it's clear that this is human beings in disobedience to God that God's plan for them was they, you know, within the narrative that they spread out across the face of the earth. But in fact, they, they say, no, uh, we, we want to build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So fundamentally, this is about humans making a name for themselves as opposed to following the divine plan. Um, but then there, as, as Robert points out, there's this haunting phrase, uh, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And so God out of grace, as well as out of judgment, he scatters them in order to prevent these unlimited possibilities uh, coming into coming to pass and it is certainly arguable 
that what we're seeing now is meets those criteria because effectively, you know, the internet revolution, the um, computers uh, and globalization means effectively there is one language, there is one people as far as technology is concerned. And we are just now exploring, you know, what is possible? What can one you know, 7 billion people on a planet who now all speak the same language, or at least many of them do, uh, the language of science and technology. And uh, now we have almost apparently, you know, unlimited access to resources. Uh, What can we do with it? And we're starting to see uh, this extraordinary runaway phenomenon of technology, uh, which you can trace, you know, going back really to the Industrial Revolution, and but um trying to understand what this all means within the context of of a biblical worldview i i think is is fascinating and very confusing certainly there is a great deal of human hubris and arrogance behind this and um you know, the whole narrative which is often coming out of Silicon Valley is the idea of the human beings, at last we've come of age, at last we're getting our hands on the levers, at last we can break out of the limits of, of the creation and all that. And and so there's, there is a huge, an enormous amount of hubris. And yet, at the same time, this very phenomenon is leading to unparalleled prosperity. It's It's leading to the fact that we can feed every person on the planet. Uh, there's more than enough food being created to f- now to feed every person on the planet. There's more than enough energy with just with solar energy and with wind to provide uh, for every, you know, almost unlimited energy needs, resources and so on. So uh, an enormous amount of good is already being done. I mean, mortality across the world, particularly pediatrics and baby mortality is, has, is plummeting to to an extent it's never been seen before in the history of the world. So it isn't all evil. It's this curious interface that both good and evil is going on. And so, I mean, if you think of it in terms of the biblical narrative, God is allowing the Tower of Babel to come into existence in a, in a new and far more powerful form. And yet it is happening in the age of grace. It it is happening after uh, the cross, after the resurrection. It is happening in, and therefore, what? how are God's purposes going to be worked out as this Tower of Babel is created in our midst? What? How is it part of the drama? I am convinced that it's part of the great drama. Uh, but exactly how that works and, and what its role is, I don't know. But we do need enormous, I think, discernment and wisdom to try to discern these bigger, bigger trends that are, that is going on in our age, in our in our time. Because one way of reading the story of the Tower of Babel is that it's profoundly a kind of anti-technology, anti-culture, anti-social message 
and there are Christian traditions that have really picked up on that. You know, you, I think of people like the Amish and, and things like and Mennonites who say, you know, when sinful human beings gather in large numbers, they do bad stuff. They create bad stuff that is corrupting and sinful and polluting. And therefore, the most faithful response is for the church to withdraw so it doesn't accumulate power and status and and also to cut itself off from the technology, the fruits of our culture and our society, so that we remain unsullied by the kind of destructive influence of of um, kind of, you know, as Robert puts it, the kind of infinite creative potential of humans. Um you clearly don't kind of think that that is the message we should be taking from this story. Why, why not? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you talked earlier about the Anabaptist Mennonite uh, tradition, and that's interesting. There's like an interesting cross-connection with the previous discussion about pacifism and, and just war because it's the same Anabaptist tradition that says withdraw uh, from society uh, because society, in a sense, is irredeemable, and and we, uh, it was often Christians in that tradition who did emphasise the importance of you know agriculture, back to the land, um, create your own communities, uh, and, and don't engage in the nasty business of of the world, of society, of politics, and so on. Um, I mean, I remember you told me recently your own uh, Christian background is in the Brethren and they saw television itself as, as sinful and something that Christians should abstain from and the radio, but only certain types of radio programs. So, you know, this this is not just for a handful of weird farmers in Pennsylvania. This is an <laughs> idea that has spread across the church. Absolutely right. And it, and it leads to what's often called pietism, which is the most important thing is that I keep my relationship with God my personal relationship with God. That's the single most important thing every day, walking uh, in love and obedience. And, and But wider engagement in society um, is regarded as worldly, as regard, is regarded as to lose this maintaining this faith, this faithfulness to God. Uh, and that pietistic tradition is, is very, very strong, um, including in in Europe, continental Europe. Um, but I think that this other tradition, which, you know, traces all the way back uh, to Augustine and beyond, um, and arguably, you know, back to Paul and the New Testament, uh, is that, and to Jesus, that we're called to be salt and light in the places where we're placed. We're called to engage, but it also takes a much more positive aspect to technology to science to culture um and seeks to redeem these things seeks to transform them i mean you know to be honest even the agricultural idyll uh, the idea is it's still all about technology you know so you're using a plow and you're using seed and you're you know it, it's just it's a more primitive form of technology but it but don't tell me that you're not there isn't a whole technology around agriculture even agriculture of 300 years ago so it's a myth that we can uh, find a non-technological space. The question is, which technologies and how do we redeem them? Um, so I, I would argue that um, the mainstream Christian view is always that we are called to engage uh, in society with all its complexity, uh, 
Uh, we're called to be salt and light. We're, uh, we're called to engage in what Stock called double listening. It seems to me the, re the real question we have to ask is, is it possible that we can redeem this technology? Is it possible that we can take it out of this evil, destructive way in which it's going and use it to genuinely support and help uh, people to flourish? And I think... Again, I would want to say one of those biblical issues which we come back time and again is the defenseless. It's widows, orphans, and aliens. So at the moment, AI seems to be so much about, you know, the powerful living their dreams. And the question is, can we use this powerful technology to really facilitate the interests of the most vulnerable in our society? That That's the Christian uh, focus, I think, always towards those most in need in our society. So just briefly, then, you don't fear that there is something particular about kind of the communication. That's what God is worried about in Genesis. And and as you say, we don't think we should have anything to fear or try and put any roadblocks to a kind of global single community that is, you know, through the power of the internet and maybe AI powered translation software that somehow all, all human beings will be kind of re-cohered into a single global community. That doesn't hold any particular fears for us. It's all about how do we manage this particularly new technology as we've had man to manage it for every other previous technological revolution. Well, this is where the fascinating thing, isn't it, about the Christian hope of the of the future, because as is often been said, the story of the Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city, and a city is above all a product of technology. So, you know how precisely that works in you know how we understand the role of current day technology with the the future heaven and earth and 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 is again complex and and a matter of continuing theological discussion and debate but that there is some connection i'm absolutely clear and therefore it's our stance should be not that technology is fundamentally wrong not that unifying people is fundamentally wrong but that we must redeem this and use it for good and for human flourishing. Very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Robert, for such a, a thought-provoking question, and indeed, um, Andrew, for the first one. Um, that's all we've got time for today in this Q&A, um, but thank you. Please do carry on sending in your questions. We really enjoy reading them, and, and we're looking forward to tackling a few more in, in, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but until then, um, uh, thanks for listening. As always, you can uh, find some more interesting things to read or listen to or watch on dad's website that's johnwyatt.com um you can email us molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um and otherwise we'll speak to you next week bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable 